there are facts in the case that both sides just omit because it doesn't it doesn't fit their narrative you know so it's they're not they're not they're not lying but I think both sides are, are, are uh, uh, not necessarily presenting a balanced uh, a balanced view welcome back to the Empire's new clothes the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires I'm your host Brad MacArthur we're about to be joined in a moment by Bruce Sosterdote. He's a professor of economics at Dartmouth University. And recently with his colleagues, he wrote a paper looking at why all COVID news is negative news. We use that as a springboard to look a little deeper into populism and what might be happening within society and the politics of the US. Hope you enjoy the conversation. Bruce, thank you for coming on today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Well, thanks, Bradford. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this uh, broad-ranging subject. Yeah. So, you know, I originally kind of gravitated towards your work because you've done a lot of study on um, the news recently in the last year or so and the negativity, and, and we'll get into that. But when I was preparing for this, I found that you, you know, you're more of a wide-ranging economist than just focusing on the news. And so you're interested in financial crises and all these other things. So, you know, to help me understand, but also our listeners, what's a bit of your background as an economist and how did you get interested in this field in general? You know, I, as an undergrad, I got interested in economics because it, it helped me and many others understand basic things about the world and the news that I was seeing, you know, like you see interest mm -hmm. rates go up and down, there's a recession and you wonder, well, why the heck is this recession going on? And why would, <laughs> who would plan that? Um, what a bad idea. And so, and then, you know, and then you see the government either spending more or less to uh, counter the recession. And so economics was a great eye-opening experience to understand what the heck was going on. Mm -hmm. And then I got Steve Levitt. I bumped into Steve Levitt um, uh, just after graduating from Dartmouth, and he convinced me that get, getting a PhD in economics would mm. be a uh, – that's what he was planning to do. And he went on to do that and became a, a super uh, famous and influential economist. And so I followed that path as well and met some amazing faculty at Harvard and MIT um, where I got interested in a whole range of different uh, uh, flavors of economics and subfields and things. Was that a tough um, convincing on his part? Were you like, yeah, okay, I, I, I could do that? It was, more, it was more the latter. You know, it was kind of, I mean, when you really think about how humans make decisions, economists have these, these overly precise models of people optimizing over perfect information. But it was much uh -huh. more like, well, you know, Steve seems a lot like me and he's got a lot of similar interests and he seems to think this is a good thing. So I should, I should check this out too. Cool. Yeah. It's that. And I think that is more representative of how humans uh, make decisions. Yeah. And, then, and then I met, you know, I met some amazing faculty like Ed Glazer and Claudia Golden and, and uh, Larry Katz and Hito Imbens at, at uh, Harvard and, and just got so interested in what they were doing in their work that I, you know, started doing my own work in, in related topics. Have you seen your interest um, move around or is there kind of some type of central theme to your areas of focus over the years? Well, they've moved around a lot. Um, the Nobel Prize that was just awarded, um, you know, went to David Card and Hito Imbens and Josh Angrist. And I was initially and am still very interested in 
sort of natural experiments where you can really nail down a causal effect of interest. And, you know, in Josh Angers' case, that might be the effect of charter schools or the effect of, uh, of desegregation through busing or something, right, or the effect of uh, draft lotteries. And I had my own set of topics like, you know, randomized roommates or winning the Mass State Lottery. And Hito Imbens and Don Rubin and I have a paper um, where we use that as an instrument for uh, big changes in wealth and how that affects people. So that was my initial interest. And I've remained with that set of interests, but I've also, you know, broadened it a lot from there, as you noted. Interesting. Okay, so quick snapshot of um, big changes in wealth. How does that change people? That definitely cues my interest you know, there. Less than, yeah, less than you might think. Uh, people quit their jobs, which is kind of what you might expect, but not everyone mm-hmm. quits. And I probably wouldn't quit my job if, if I hit the lottery or hit the lottery metaphorically, like if I was accidentally holding a lot of GameStop in, <laughs> in uh, 2021. If I hit the lottery that way, I wouldn't, I wouldn't quit my job. So, you know, uh, there's a, we estimate the effect of uh, unearned uh, income on labor supply, and it's kind of modest. Um, most of the people who won, their kids were too old for that to really affect their college going. It doesn't affect their college going as much as you might think. Hmm. Um, I think for though for in, in other studies, I think that low income families can really benefit, particularly uh, uh, low income families who get an influx of resources when the kids are really young. I think that that can make a huge difference. Um, I think that you or me winning the lottery doesn't necessarily. Uh, uh, you know, makes us a little happier. Uh, I don't think it necessarily has a, a massive impact. Interesting. So you definitely seem to have this curiosity that's moving around the different topics, but if, I don't know if it's possible to nail you down, but if you could only focus on one topic or area in economics for the rest of your career, what might that be? You know that's that's impossible to answer, and I'll, and I'll tell you I'll tell you why. Sort of two, I, you know, I have to I have to have at least two areas. There's the things that I can publish well, and there's mm. the things that are like super interesting. Right? Okay, give me the two so, then. <laughs> okay, so the things that are interesting, and I don't want to insult my co-authors or my own work. There's the thing that things that are interesting and can publish well, like, uh, you know, we have a, a, a co-authors and I, um, Andrew Barr and Laura Kawano, Mike Stevens, Bill Skimmyhorn, we have what I would say is a very nice paper on the impacts of the new GI Bill on vets and on vets earnings and vets education. And studies like that are of great interest to labor economists and education economists because mm-hmm. we have a, a big intervention and we can follow people over time who did it did did not get the big intervention, and so studies like that are very can be very defensible and convincing, and so I love participating in that kind of work and, and doing that kind of thing. But then um, there are some of the things that 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 you highlighted at the beginning of the podcast that I think are just like super interesting and important. Like you know you asked the question you know is America in decline? Are uh, are people getting richer or poor? Are they are they uh, worse off than their kids. And in some ways you can answer that empirically, but you can't necessarily, you could do that in kind of a descriptive way. You can't say, oh, you know, here's the perfect experiment. We we just ran a great experiment with the treatment and control group to ask, answer question X. And so I'm, I'm sort of inherently interested in both. Mm-hmm. So I, I came across a talk um, online, I'm trying to remember where it was from. You were talking about financial crises 
And mm-hmm. so I'd, I'd love to do a quick breeze over before we get into your most recent study on um, news and the negativity around COVID. Mm-hmm. So in, in real broad strokes, are financial crises necessary in your view? No, I would say I would say no, but they keep happening. I, you know, I have to admit I haven't thought about this uh, since the last financial crisis. Um, but they <laughs> really, uh, but history definitely rhymes, and these things keep happening. Um, and they're when I say that they're not necessary, what I I mean a number of things by that. One is I mean that good policy and thoughtful. Uh, thoughtful setting up the rules. I, I'm going to use the word regulation, even though it's not just, uh, it's not about, we need more regulation, you know, banks can't be allowed to lend and then we won't mm-hmm. have a crisis. It's not that kind of uh, thing. Thoughtful policy can certainly both mitigate, reduce the number of bubbles and crises we have and can make them less bad when they occur. So they, I would say that they're neither necessary nor are they necessarily helpful. Like good things can come out of it, right? Like if suppose um, there's some really lousy industry that is not a, is not an industry you'd want your kids to work in and doesn't have great wages and a recession might come along and kill that off. But that doesn't mean that you need um, – so good things can come out of it. You know, like maybe uh, maybe we were flying in airplanes too much and then this COVID crisis comes along and we learn, we learn how to interact uh, electronically for some things. That doesn't necessarily mean that we wanted to have a COVID crisis, even if, if, good, mm-hmm. if some positive things come out of it. So, so positive things can come out of crises, but they're not a necessary part of life. And we know, uh, in some sense, we know at least on the interior solution that um, we're having fewer of them and we're doing fewer stupid things in the financial market. And when bad things happen in financial markets, uh, we're mitigating them better through central bank policy and through and through fiscal policy. So, and this so, is really Ben Bernanke's work, not mine. You know, yeah. this is but this is what macroeconomists study. But they're they're absolutely right. Doug Irwin and Ben Bernanke and many famous uh, uh, Ken Rogoff. You know, all the all a lot of the top macro people. So, would you then say it sounds like you're leaning towards the end? But I just want to. Um, clarify, are you saying we have thoughtful policies now more so than say in the past or where would you peg oh, 100%. us? 100%. And, and you, know, it, you know, I have to go back and again, think a lot about Bernanke's work and Milton Friedman's work and Doug Irwin's work. But um, the, great, uh, the Great Depression was, was heavily facilitated by poor policies, mm-hmm. you know, refusals to get off the gold standard, um, refusals to allow currencies to adjust. Um, an unwillingness to an attempt to balance the budget, uh, the federal budget, rather than expand fiscal policy to to alleviate the problem. So I think that many economists would say that um, the Great Depression was was ushered in or greatly helped by uh, terrible policy choices. Yep. Well, okay, I'll I'll try to press that a little bit here and and to get some more of your thoughts on that it. And, you know, I can be completely wrong in this, but it seems like, and some people have highlighted this, that recently, to avoid financial crises, we're sacrificing financial asset and real asset inflation, uh, historic inequality, populism, a system of privatized gains, socialized losses, and uh, divided politics. So these are, of course, not on purpose, but some of them are outcomes of policies, uh, the bailout policies and stuff. So what do you think about this as a transaction of like we're, we're exchanging one risk for a different risk? 
Well, what is it? Let's take them one at a time because I think that they may not all. That was a mouthful. The arrows might not all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the arrows might not all point in the same direction, and they may not be necessary consequences of say engaging in bailouts. Because you know, if you were to ask me, um, and I, I don't want to speak for uh, uh, Carmen Reinhardt and Ken Rogoff, but you know, I think if you were to ask them, certainly certain. I think many economists, including myself, would agree certain bailouts are helpful, necessary. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, help everyone lead to lead to. Uh, uh, so yeah, so give me a, give me a, a, a for instance and a possible negative consequence of of say uh, engaging in, in a rescue or a bailout or or or, or supportive fiscal policy. Like what, so, yeah, what 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 do you have in mind? What 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 sorts of negative consequences did you have in mind? Oh, so um, I guess start with the first one. So um, supporting assets in that manner, it seems to have raised the price of financial assets over, yes. let's say, the teens, the 20 teens. Um, yeah. 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 And then now right. in the most recent support, uh, you know, March 2020, it seems to have uh, increased inflation in the real economy. Yeah. And so that, okay. That, yeah, no, that's great. Okay. Yeah, so that's a completely that's a completely valid question, and one that uh, if economists told you they know the answer to the the, the sort of twenty 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 one problem, they'd be uh, overstating <laughs> what we know, right? So, yeah, clearly, um, I would say, and I think I think the vast majority of economists would agree with me that it made a tremendous amount of sense to provide stimulus payments to families and extra unemployment insurance to folks who couldn't work because their job was heavily COVID affected and their business was shut down. You know, you work in a restaurant, you own a restaurant. Um, so it, to me, it made all the sense in the world to provide uh, support to those folks. And then does that extra income, and this was the most bizarre recession because income went up during the recession. Home and house prices went up mm -hmm. during the recession, right? How, yeah. When the hell does and that ever happen? Unemployment and, has dropped yeah, quicker than any any historic time after right. recession. That's right. Now, um, I would add to that that um, labor force participation is still low and lower than 2019. And so um, it, it, it may follow, it probably follows that we could have done more or it's not crazy that we did all this because even though the unemployment rate is down, you still would like to drag more people into the labor force. And I, you know, uh, Larry Summers has said on many occasions, as, as have many others, look, um, the best thing uh, for workers is when there's jobs or ch firms and jobs are chasing workers and drawing them into the labor force and driving wages up. And so uh, the fact that we were, the government was involved, the federal government was involved in creating that situation is is not at all a bad thing. Um, yeah, we have, and we've been trying for years. Here's the ironic part. We've been trying since the, the um, Great uh, Recession to create inflation. Trying and trying and trying, and it's been below target, been below the Fed's target, and so it seemed like it felt like we could print quite a bit of money, and we still wouldn't hit the the two percent target for inflation. Okay, so now we finally hit it, and we're complaining that we did too good a job. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and we probably did because seven percent is a lot. Um, so yes, that's a lot. Um, it's only a huge problem if we have to cause a recession to get it back down again. You know, the Volcker think Volcker disinflation. Um, let's hope that that's not where we're headed. I, I don't think it is. So uh, we did too good a job. We got more inflation than we bargained for. Um, okay, 
maybe that comes down. Um, may, hopefully that comes down slowly over time. And hopefully, you know, we don't see double digit inflation. Um, hopefully we haven't built 7% permanently into price and wage expectations. Um, inflation is not, the reason there's a 2% target as opposed to a 0% target, inflation is not a bad thing because human beings tend to um, have, tend to be anchored on nominal prices. So if house prices, for example, or wages need to move for the economy to clear, you know, so you suppose you live in, I'm, I'm sorry to pick on Detroit and Cleveland, but suppose you live in Detroit and Cleveland, it may be that uh, home prices there need to fall if there's been a negative shock to how many jobs there are in economic activity. Um, maybe home prices need to fall in real terms in order for that market to clear. But if people won't sell homes for less than they paid for them in nominal terms, or they're stuck with a bunch of nominal debt that they use to buy the home, having a bit of inflation to help grease the wheels is not a, is, is not a bad thing. Because um, nominal prices tend not to fall. They tend mm -hmm. to be downwardly rigid, right? So, so inflation, that's why we don't have a 0% target. That's why we have a, you know, a positive target. Um, we, did, we got a little bit, maybe a little too much grease here, and we don't necessarily want to build in um, that, that, that prices are galloping ahead uh, by 7% every, every single year. Yeah. So that that's really that. So that's really my thought on that, which is that yeah. Look, we've been trying to we've been trying to get in this situation for a while, and uh, we got into it a little bit too much. But maybe the, these were uh, some unforeseen factors. The uh, world economy uh, came roaring back more quickly than we thought, and that drove up energy prices more than we thought. And there were supply chain problems and all that kind of stuff. So. Um, yeah, and to be clear, it's on. easy to be an armchair critic. Um, I think it yeah. was Jim Grant who's now famously said when pressed, what would you do if you were the chairman of the Fed? He said, I'd resign. <laughs> There's yeah, that's a great, it's funny. I was just having a similar position. thought. Like a, yeah, and, and what's weird is that they talk, these central banks talk and talk and talk about, you know, they give you every, um, after every meeting, you get, a, you get a press conference and many paragraphs on the economy. But what do they really have? They have a couple of policy tools, right? They can they can change the the, the target level of Fed funds rate, and they can change the amount of uh, uh, sort of fiscal stimulus or bond buying they're doing, right? So they have a couple of tools. They they can change the reserve requirement and things. But uh, you know, for all the all the discussion of how the economy is doing, there's only a couple of levers, and you know they'll gently pull those levers in the direction they think is best. But you know, who the heck knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think. My main concern could be summed up as the U.S. seems to be exchanging financial risk for social and political risk. And I, I suppose that's just my concern of like that whole process is kind of like running away from one risk, but then thereby creating other risks without thinking much um, about the process necessarily, or at least when we, See, when they hear them talk, it's more like, no, no, we don't, we don't cause and we're not causing those issues. We're not causing inequality. We're not, we have no connection to that. And it's like, well, ah, well, see, and so the, and this is, this is where, this is why I wanted, I had you break it down into smaller pieces because it's not at all clear that inflation, um, by increasing the risk of inflation or the amount of inflation, that goes hand in hand with attempts to reduce inequality. Mm -hmm. um, for example, uh, yeah, it's murky, right? Because folks are, um, uh, you know, a lot of this is us um, giving additional payments, say uh, 
you know, the, the child tax credit, the expanded child, refundable child tax credit, giving that to low and moderate income families, right? A lot of the inflation uh, is coming from payments to families that may need that money, you know, for food, clothing, and housing, and, uh, you know, to send their kids to school. So um, it's not, it's actually going in the same direction. The things that are inflationary are things that they're trying to do to uh, reduce consumption inequality and reduce um, political sort of resentment or political risk, you know? And so it's not immediately obvious that inflation is bad for poor people and good for rich people. Like, like you know, you could posit that. I'm not going to say you, one could posit that, but it's not completely clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still kind of digging into this and asking the question, well, are wages, um, you know, now that we have this inflation, are wages at the low end rising faster than wages at the high end? You know, has that has that changed uh, due to inflation? There's no theorem that says that somehow rich people are immune from inflation and poor people are harmed by it. You know, um, and if the if the poor people have more housing debt, it depends. It depends what assets the rich people are holding, and it depends what their what their incomes do. Right? Mm-hmm. So, pivoting here, COVID started. Going to go back in time a little bit. We're all we're all locked please. down. You're, yeah, please. We don't want to go back in time. You're 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 locked down, um, and something starts catching your eye. Like, walk me through your story of um, when you start being inundated with the news, and like, what do you start piecing together? Yeah, so I just start seeing the. Um, I'm following very closely CNN and Fox and and uh, PBS NewsHour and NPR, and. I just notice, um, first of all, they keep repeating the same thing over and over again, week after week. And one of the things you notice, and it's all negative, and one of the things that I noticed and my co-authors on that paper noticed was that positive developments like uh, the potential development of a vaccine were very much poo-pooed. This is at the very beginning. And I would say in some ways, Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I think there's still a bit of this going on, although we haven't looked at this quantitatively um, in several months. Um, whereas negative developments like rises in case numbers, um, were highlighted and a lot of, I mean, to the, one of the, one of the aspects of this is that the, you know, PBS news hour would constantly, constantly report there's a record number of cases or a record number of deaths. Well, of course, like the, 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 the stock of, of people who'd been killed by COVID was going up over time. It couldn't help that mechanically. That's the only thing that could happen. The question is, you know, are we getting better at treating people in hospitals? Are we uh, um, are positivity rates going down, or is it falling in some states? Are policies helping? You know, these are the these are the kind of things that 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 weren't getting weren't being addressed that much. And I mean, I think for now, you know, to fast forward to now, um, there's clearly some positive things to be said. Like, yeah, it, tons of people are getting Omicron, but look at how lightly they're getting it if they've been triple vaccinated, right? And there was a tremendous amount of angst about hospitals being overwhelmed. But uh, where are the stories about the fact that, hey, good news, because of new therapies and because so many people were vaccinated, um, the, you know, they weren't as overwhelmed as we feared. You know? And so maybe we avoided X number of deaths because um, we've got treatments now that if someone presents with COVID in their high-risk uh, case, they can get that treatment. So the, and, and then there's, of course... There's not, it's not been hidden, but maybe not uh, discussed a lot. Um, we all hope 
that this Omicron could be um, sort of a, a part of a spiral of COVID getting less deadly. Mm-hmm. We don't know that. We don't know that at all. But like, at least you could imagine there, there, there should be room for a lot of discussion about, okay, is this the track we thought it was going to take? And based on other pathogens, um, does this look like we're kind of on that track? What's the probability? You know, that there's a lot of, um, you know, potentially positive probabilities and things out there. Um, what about the fact it's a miracle that Omicron comes out and within a couple of days, both Moderna and Pfizer say, you know what, we can develop a vaccine that um, uh, that addresses that. I mean, that never three years ago, no, yeah. no chance, not, not a chance. And all of a sudden, these companies believe that they can within 60 days, within 90 days, they can have and be testing a new vaccine that addresses that variant. You know, that's that's pretty that's pretty astounding. Right. So that was kind of the that was the genesis of the paper was trying to measure the level of negativity in COVID coverage and compare it across types of sources, but across also across countries, English, other English speaking countries. Okay, And so what did your study find? Well, the U.S. coverage was a lot. The the coverage of the U.S. major media was a lot more negative, Mm -hmm. you know, um, something like uh, was that your 30 or 40 percent. Was that your hypothesis, hypothesis going into it, or was it was it? bigger than we thought? Okay, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was bigger and more uniform than we thought. Mm. We thought maybe it'll differ a lot by the politics of the network, but mm. that not not so much. Hmm. It was just that um, big U.S. networks um, at that time really were emphasizing the negative stories relative to say. Canadian sources relative to um, the UK, um, relative to India. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Exactly. Well, you know, different what different country. I mean, not everything different. Co- but it's great. You have these two uh, large countries side by side, mm-hmm. very similar legal systems, and yet not perfectly the same. And so it's, it's so interesting to compare across countries. And that gets to, you asked me, well, what's, what, what's the work that you find interesting, but it's hard to publish? Well, obviously, cross-country comparisons are, like, super, super interesting, interesting. but not at all, like, definitive. You know what I mean? Mm. And what did you, were you able to highlight why they were different, perhaps between Canada, UK, US? You know, and we, it, nothing, again, cross-country comparison, none of this can be proven. What we, what we believe, what we suspect is that the, the organization of the media industry is quite different across, well, we know that it's quite different across these countries. And for example, um, the U.S. media players are, or the U.S. media companies are working in a much bigger market. They are, those players are much more profitable. Um, and they're not competing with a large public player that has a, you know, a commitment to um, sort of a more sort of fair and balanced commitment, which is not to say the public players in the media are perfect. I'm just saying that, you know, like, mm-hmm. like we've got a much smaller player in that regard. And, you know, the, um, and we don't have sort of fair and balanced reporting laws. We no longer kind of have that um, laws pushing media companies to sort of give equal coverage to both sides of a controversial issue, you know? So they're, they're just better at, uh, in, in, in short, we think that American media companies are better at giving people what they want hmm. uh, with, you know, clickbait things that are attention grabbing. And, and uh, even if they're not good for your mental health, they're they're uh, <laughs> We often hu- humans often gravitate uh, in the short run towards things that are not great for their health. Right. No. So. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> sorry to say it's true. That's interesting because you mentioned uh, a moment ago, PBS was hitting you with all this negative news, whereas yeah. they're somewhat, 
the counterpart to CBC in Canada or BBC in the UK, though, of course, very different in their um, might and size. So why the difference between, say, PBS, CBC and BBC? You know, that's a great question. And I hadn't really, I, I until you asked that question, I, I've not thought deeply about it. So I don't know. Like you would think that um, there seems to be, if I had a guess, the one, the one thing I would point out is that there does seem to be more of a political lean to an NPR um, or a PBS NewsHour than to the CBC. That's just a guess. I could be dead wrong. I'm happy to be proven dead wrong on that. So there is some interaction. This is not completely, this negativity is not completely apolitical. Naturally, you've got to believe there's also some interaction between the, uh, um, between the, the, the desire to put out negative stuff that catches people's attention, but also, um, to feed people, uh, um, to feed the political leanings of, of the audience. And so I, I think that may have, there may be an interaction there that that's feeding that a bit. Well, that's really interesting that you didn't notice a big difference between left and right leaning news organizations. And that makes me think, um, the left is always worried in getting on the right about their, um, so many words I could say, but like their their disregard for facts in regard to say climate change. Um, I mean, they don't stop talking about that. And yet it sounds like the left is not accurately portraying what science has to say about COVID. To me, that sounds like a contradiction. Yeah, certainly at that time, I think that I think that's right. And we don't, and you know, we don't take a stand on this in the paper saying that it's inaccurate. Mm. We're saying that it's different. You gotcha. Know? Okay. And so, Maybe I'm digging uh, into it too that, much. But but you, no, no, no. I I mean, it that's that's implied. Like we don't want to take a stand on that, but that's an implication, right? That yeah. like they could. In either case, you know, we didn't find. Um, um, we don't find that Fox News and CNN knowingly publish falsehoods. Like that's not the claim that they say. Mm. You know, X number of people died from COVID when it was really Just you know only highlight one X. side. Um, they it's that they highlight one side. You know, we don't find honestly any evidence of like outright falsehoods and outright lies. These these organizations are actually quite good at. Um, reporting things that are true, but mm-hmm. they highlight, you know, just as you noted, like there'll be one, you know, you think about Fox news finds one teacher that accuses Bernie of, um, exhibiting white privilege by wearing mittens. And, you know, and they'll talk about that ad nauseum. Well, that was one teacher in San Francisco, you know, one thing, you know, of all the, of all the classrooms that took place, you know, around inauguration time. Right. And so it's, it's more, that kind of um it's it's more that kind of thing but i i do um i do worry that both sides are not uh uh um if you look at coverage of say the um the january 6th uh you know whether you want to call it a riot an insurrection an attack um just the words that are used are so completely different Mm -hmm. uh between the two and there are facts in the case that both sides just omit because it doesn't it doesn't fit their narrative, you know. So it's they're not they're not they're not lying, but I think both sides are are, are uh, uh, not necessarily presenting a balanced uh, a balanced view yeah. of an event like that. So in this process of COVID hits, we're all locked down. So much negative news. It sounds like it's somewhat more of a trend that had. Of course, you weren't studying before COVID, um, so we can't say for sure. But it sounds like that wouldn't have just happened clearly overnight. 
do you think this seems to push people away or towards more news consumption? In, in your case, it seems like it was a negative response, but in general, what do you think? Yeah. Yes, I think I think it pu- it pushes people towards more consumption, and the the media companies do not do this by accident. They do mm-hmm. it because it gets people locked into uh, locked onto their television sets. They don't do things that drive away viewership, and so sadly, uh, you know, there's a, there's a great book out called The Power of Bad, and and so uh, yeah, they're, they're, this is a very knowing thing. The same way, um, you know, when YouTube. Uh, or your Twitter feed or YouTube cues up a series of videos, they're looking for things that are going to grab your attention and get you to watch the next video, the next video, the next video, right? Darn um, it, there's no I have winning. a friend who's visiting. <laughs> there, there is, there is, yeah, exactly. No, it's really like, no, no you're right. There's not. And it's like, we got to, uh, um, we got to come up with ways to sort of protect ourselves against, um, because companies are so good at manipulating mm-hmm. our emotions and, and playing on our behavioral, the, the behavioral aspects of, of being human. Um, I have, I'm visiting my class this week. I'm about to go see him as a friend of mine named Bill Bundy. And he, he runs a company called Iris TV. And what they do is try to help media companies moderate. Um, they've got a few of the big players or their customers. And they, they try to help um, a large media companies decide what to show next to viewers on their websites, but to moderate this uh, two trends. Number one, they don't use, Iris TV doesn't use personal information about you, so they don't use like a cookie to really hone in on you. Wow, Bradford's really worried about home prices, so now we're going to hammer him with like tons of stuff about home prices. Um, So they don't do that sort of overly personalized, super personalized stuff that that Facebook does and can do. Um, But they also try to moderate what you're most likely to get addicted to with what might be sort of interesting and like more like intellectually useful or, you know, sort of, you know, potentially factually accurate or something, you know, so it's kind of a, to, to moderate. So not to just go for the thing that's going to be the strongest clickbait, but to sort of offer a, a slightly more balanced um, um, set of offerings to people. So I, you know, I think that's, but yeah, we got to have, I think we got to think about tools. I think you didn't ask this, but really where all this is headed in my mind is that, there is obviously tremendous polarization in this country. And my co-authors and I think that this is driven by really successful media companies getting people whipped up into a frenzy, causing people to then go consume um, things that aren't true on social media that fit the, the, you know, the narrative that's building in their heads and, and kind of constructing a world in which uh, there's a set of, uh, you know, presentations, I don't want to say facts, uh, a set of assertions that are tailor-made to people's uh, sort of narrow view. And so it, this is a cycle of, of polarization. You know, this is kind of a cycle that has made things worse. Mm-hmm. And, th- th- and that's really, I think that's really the crux of the matter when it comes to polarization. And I think that with... Uh, I, we can't do this by fiat. We can't do this by simple legislation. But I think that um, theoretically, if we were consuming different forms of media and we were all, if, if we rewind to 1950, where we were all consuming a more homogenous uh, set of media offerings, um, there would be less polarization. I'm not saying I'm not saying that's a better world or that where that's going to happen overnight. But like there, there's, there's a strong connection between there's an alternative. There's a strong connection between 
uh, the amount of information that's out there, how it's tailored, the ability of, of us as Americans to find our own silo and uh, people's incredibly polarized beliefs. Yeah, well, that really makes me think of what could be said is kind of the age-old question or the philosophical question of news. Uh, feeding biases grows an audience, yet it neuters your product, which is the news. So, it, so it's it's this dichotomy there. And so I guess should major media respond to consumer demand? Because it sounds like they are, yet in the long run, that might force people to leave because, you know, I'm just sick and tired of the same thing over and over again. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't have the, I don't have the, the answer out of this conundrum. And it does sound like we talk a lot about market failures in economics. And this does sound like a classic market failure because, <laughs> the, you know, it's sort of like, um, this might sound like an extreme analogy, but like humans might be demanding opioid prescriptions um, and there might be reasons for opioids to be out there, but that doesn't mean that the market will lead to the best, the the most efficient, long run, safest mm -hmm. uh, level of opioid consumption, right? And so I don't have when it comes to the media, it's a lot easier to regulate uh, a prescription drug than it is to 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 regulate the media um, without trampling on the constitution. And so I don't have the I don't have the solution to yeah. this problem, but it's a I think it is a problem. Well, you mentioned earlier um, we don't have the regulations in the U.S. as some of the other countries do. Are, are you referring to um, the fairness doctrine? Yeah, that's correct. And 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 again, I think that's a sign. We think that's a signpost. It's not to say that the existence of, because it, it's you know it's, it's hard to interpret fairness doctrines, and so it's not. You can't just simply say, "Oh, if you put this law in place, boom, everything's different." Yeah. Right? Let, that's that's not the case. But it's sort of a signpost of the fact that we've had a different approach mm -hmm. and history matters. And when the fairness doctrine was challenged, um, there was the huge rise of the radio of radio shock jocks and Rush Limbaugh being that, you know, the most uh, prominent example. Um, and so that gave rise, media companies realized, wow, there's strong demand for uh, sort of opinion uh, journalism and uh, people will consume a lot of it and they'll consume more of it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a history there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that there's a, uh, an, a, an obvious causal pathway that, oh, we just changed this law. That's going to change something. Yeah. You know? So I want to drill a little bit into vaccine hesitancy. And I know this wasn't a specific part of the study, but maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you haven't. You can just tell me. But how much do you think of that is specifically related to all this negative news coverage? Because you did mention a bit about, you know, we're only reporting the negative parts about vaccines, not the positives. You know, I'd, I'd like to, to, to give our study credit for uncovering something important about vaccine hesitancy. But honestly, it's hard to say, mm -hmm. right? Like, clearly, if the story... Okay, so we didn't run the experiment where the story from the get-go was every network and every paper and every politician was saying, look, these vaccines are going to be great. If we can just get to them, boy, everyone's going to get them. We're not going to have problems distributing, distributing them. They're going to be available at every Walgreens and CVS and, and, and hospital, um, and it's going to work out mm -hmm. great. Just everybody hang on, everybody get one, right? We didn't run that experiment. And so it would be unfair to blame the media for the fact that we ran a very different, a, a weird and different experiment where there was like 
politicians were like not to- not all were willing to commit to this being a great thing, and then later they were, but maybe was that too late? So you know, <laughs> it, it's hard to blame. It's hard to blame the media, mm-hmm. you know. And there was vaccine hesitancy in this country before this whole mess, and before it became really yep. a political thing, right? There was just hesitancy on different vaccines. Yeah. So uh, while it'd be it'd be great for our paper to blame the media, I think it would be um, pretty unfair because we don't we don't know that they were a, we don't know that they were a prime mover in this. Yeah, and we don't know what conclusions people would have come to. Even in the absence of politicians hemming and hawing about that. Exactly. Go go ahead. Well, you just mentioned we had hesitancy before this, and that makes me think of two two things here. COVID, and it's been said many times before, COVID has seemed like an accelerator. Whatever trends were before, it's accelerated and amplified those. But then secondly, this first time I've thought about it this way, has anyone studied that? Because that would be so fascinating if there is a way to somehow mm. study, because we all feel it anecdotally, but I haven't heard anyone be like, yes, we we did this study, and yes, it did accelerate all these different measures of, because it wasn't just one thing. Then just amplify right. vaccine and, hesitancy. And, and so that gets in, and this wraps back to um, our initial discussion about sort of things I can prove and publish in, yeah, a, in, a, yeah. in a great referee decon journal and things that are like super interesting that I can't prove. And that, uh, you know, it would be a very neat descriptive paper. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure a non-referee journal uh, would want to take it, but it's a really interesting <laughs> hypothesis, isn't it? Um, that, you know, maybe for example, employment changes. And I think that labor economists do think about recessions as, um, accelerators of, you know, industry job, job loss and industry change that was going to happen anyway, but happened a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so I think that, I think within a, within a recession, uh, job loss context, it it makes a lot of sense. Now to broaden that to social phenomena, you know, it's a cool, that's a really cool idea. Um, and I haven't thought about how one can structure a study. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a very neat thought. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm the wrong person to brainstorm that with you. So, (laughs) um, we're we're living in an era right now where our trust in institutions is eroding. Do you do you think any of what you've studied, the negativity of news, is impacting that at all in, in any capacity? Yes, and I, I would I would say, and um, you know, since you were born, we've been living in an era where trust in institutions is eroding, right? And so I don't know. I'm not totally sure how to interpret those numbers. You know, if since it's been eroding since the Vietnam War, um, like you think it should be completely eroded by now, mm. right? And so like you wonder, like, is it just that we, when we respond to those questions, we mean something different, you know? And I wonder if you, you know, I mean, maybe we need to ask more specific questions. Like what's the likelihood if you call the police, what's the likelihood that they'll act, they'll like deal with the problem or that they'll, arrest the perpetrator rather than the victim. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, so, 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 you know, so maybe we should ask more specific, if we ask super specific questions, we might still see drop offs in beliefs that the government will actually do the thing it's supposed to do. Um, hopefully the, hopefully the survey numbers overstate the degree to which actual functioning of society and government are, are falling apart. Yeah. Um, so what's uh, what's the next? Where's your curiosity taking you next? So so pretty unrelated things. Uh, now, two uh, three students and I published um, just uh, published a uh, p- 
paper on congressional stock trading and senator stock trading in uh, Journal of Public Economics. Interesting. And we were like super interested in that. The students came up. Yeah. And it turns out to um, be um, not nearly as uh, explosive as you might think. On average, <laughs> they don't do particularly well at all. They don't do poorly. They don't do badly. I mean, you could have a, a bunch of monkeys picking stocks and you, you would get a relatively similar <laughs> results. Um, and the thing that Yes, and there's a, there's a, there's a paper that I am uh, very excited about. I'm working on with some Treasury colleagues, um, asking questions about what could uh, what could one do to um, make uh, filing easier for people using all the amazing uh, information returns that IRS has. Um, could we, um, you know, other returns have sort of tax uh, agency reconciliation and other ways to make filing easier. So we've been talking about and working on a paper to study um, making the filing process easier. And we're super excited about that. Um, Interesting. And it, it won't, uh, yes, and it, and it won't um, affect all Americans because some people have enough uh, uh, complicated enough tax situation, but there are, uh, um, there are a lot of Americans that have a, a straightforward enough situation that maybe um, the federal government could do a lot um, to ease the mm -hmm. tax filing burden. So I'm pretty, pretty fired up about that. How do these things... And that's with... Uh, yeah, go ahead. How do these things cross your radar? Like, I mean, they're, they're not... You know, super, that's one... Trying to pick out a yeah, theme here, but... Yeah, not super related, but I tell you <laughs> what, um, a number of economists... Um, uh, so so these, the economists I'm working with are at the Federal Reserve and the Office of Tax Analysis, mm -hmm. um, but a number of economists... Um, Raj Chetty and John Friedman and, and Nathan Hendren in particular um, created a partnership with the IRS several years ago, 10 years ago, um, in which they produced an amazing number of, of, of super uh, interesting and innovative papers using administrative mm -hmm. data. And that got a lot of us thinking about, okay, what else could we do when we you know, started partnering and, 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 and doing work um, with Treasury? on topics and, and it's sort of one thing leads to another, you know, and of course you want to work uh, on important topics. You also want to work, you need to work on things that are of direct use to the federal government. And mm -hmm. so if you're going to, if you're going to uh, partner with them. And so that's kind of, you uh, those partnerships evolve and, 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 and these are the kinds of things that come out of them. Do they help fund um, endeavors like that? Not exactly. No. And luckily, you know, the whole idea of, uh, research universities and tenured professors is that we have some of the, some of our time can be devoted to projects mm -hmm. like this. Right. So, um, and of course you can get out external funding, you know, I have, uh, funding from, from, uh, the Russell Sage foundation, for example, that helps pay, um, for, for some of that work. Um, but it's also true that just, you know, the existence of Dartmouth and the federal funding that Dartmouth gets enables me to have time to, to work on projects like that. Yeah. Very cool. Well, that must, I mean, the idea of going from studying negativity of news to working with the Federal Reserve, the IRS, it, that's many different worlds, you, 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 especially from the um, tax side. I mean, is it challenging just to alone figure out the um, basically their own unique language of tax code, tax law? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And, you know, luckily I've got some amazing uh, co-authors at OTA, uh, Lucas Goodman and Andy Winton, and uh, they know they've forgotten in one day more about, you know, tax <laughs> rules than I'll ever know. So luckily, 
Um, you know, we don't all have to know every single uh, detail. And maybe some hungry students the, who are um, ready to do some of the grunt work too. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, so that's why you know projects and. Uh, work produced by social scientists and econo- economists in particular, the projects have gotten bigger and bigger in terms of the number of people mm-hmm. and much, much more complex in terms of the number of people, the number of time and the data that are employed. Right. And so, you know, it's gone from just me and a, and a, a desktop computer using publicly available data to, you know, teams of eight and 10 people, you know, working on uh, in highly controlled environments, you know, working with uh, special specialized data under uh, under very strict conditions. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's a it's a different world out there. And a very exciting one. Yeah. Too. Well, so, Bruce, if folks want to find um, some of your written work, I know that you've got a site at Dartmouth, I believe. And then um, you've been cited yep, in a right. bunch of articles recently about um news the stuff we were talking about but is there a place yes. folks can go to find more your um your work if they're interested you know prop yeah thank you yeah and they can certainly google me and find my dartmouth page um but also if you go on scholar.google.com and search for bruce sacerdote um all, virtually all the things that we're working on will pop up and they can see the, the working papers for those awesome Great. Well, Bruce, thank you yeah. so much for jumping on and um, walking us through this wide world. Yeah, of course, Bradford. It's, a, it's a really a pleasure. And I hope, uh, I hope we get to do it again sometime soon. Definitely. Before you go, got a quick new announcement for you. After the next couple episodes come out, we're going to end season one. And we're going to take the next six months then and dive down deep and create a podcast miniseries where we'll have the freedom to drill down into the core pillars of an empire. We'll stack all those up as different episodes. Each episode will be a single topic. And we'll look for a single thread running throughout. What brings all these crazy different topics and events together? And that way we can better understand what we're going through today and what our future might look like. We're super excited. If you'd like to follow along, go to our website, click on subscribe. We're not going to hit you with emails all the time, but we will let you know when the release date is. So thank you so much for being on this journey with us. And we're very excited for what's in store ahead.